Welcome to the Todd DeVoe Show, exploring the best ideas and lessons for leaders. Good morning, good morning, good afternoon, depending on where you are at in this fine world. And, you know, I'm a little bit under the weather today, so if my voice sounds funny or whatever, if I cough or sneeze, I do pre-apologize for that. But we're going to get through this because this is an important conversation. And I have Josh uh, Bowen with me, um, coming from the Great White North and uh, Canada here. And we're going to talk about leading resilience in robust communities and also, you know, some of the issues that we're having in uh, across the board in, in higher education and emergency management. Josh, welcome to the show. Good morning, Todd. Great to be here. Awesome. Uh, man, we were talking earlier about the about the books and uh, just wanted to let everybody know that these are these are actual real backgrounds. They're not uh, virtual backgrounds on both of us. So. <laughs> here I go. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, every time I laugh, okay, every time I laugh, I cough. <laughs> okay, all right, no more laughing because I start coughing, and that's it. So, Josh, tell me some of the work you're doing because this is this kind of really when I noticed you first on on LinkedIn was a couple of the pieces that you put out regarding resiliency and community robustness. Uh, what and on, and and one of the things I've noticed over the last few years is like the term resiliency has kind of got squishy, and um. You know, and so, you know, uh, Nicholas Taleb was looking for a harder word than resiliency when he was writing his book. He wrote anti-fragile. Um, and so he, you know, coined that that word. Um, what is resiliency and community robustness to you? Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a great stepping off point. Um, you know, I, I love uh, Taleb's construct of anti-fragile. Because right? that's really what it what it comes down to. I mean, resiliency means the ability to bounce back and blah blah blah, um, and and that's great. But if all we're doing is is bouncing back, uh, that means that we're still going to build houses and floodplains. That we're not going to fire smart communities. That we're still going to be like, hey, this fault line looks like a great place to put a bridge. Um, let's do that. And so when we actually look at at how we build resilient communities, we need we need to look and say. What's the, what's the physical geography that we're talking about? What is the natural world that we're talking about here? What are the hazards that are present there? Then we look at the built world and like we built a lot of stuff uh, over, the, over the years, right? Uh, and so what does, what does that do? What hazards does that bring? And what are we exposing people to in terms of, of those, uh, that natural or the built world? And then let's layer in the social world, right? Because if, if a, a tree falls in the forest, does anybody care? Um, right. If it hits a person, yes, we do, right? And then it's an emergency, right? Or we got to deal with that. Um, and if it knocks out, you know, a, a pipeline and we've got an oil spill, now it's a disaster. But if it doesn't impact people, then that's kind of a different issue, right? And so we have to layer in that social world and understand what makes communities vulnerable and what puts people at risk or exposed to hazards. And then we've got this whole cyber world that we can talk about too. Um, but really, you know, understanding those four different layers and then how they actually interact. So go all the way up and all the way back down um, and go from there. And how do we make that anti-fragile? So when we look at this, and, and, you're, and you're right, and I've been talking to my students about this for a little bit regarding the idea of um, is, it a, is it a disaster or crisis if it doesn't impact humans? Um, and there's a strong argument that says, no, it's just a natural occurrence that's occurring, right? So if we had a wildland fire, which are needed, by the way, 
you know, for those that, that don't understand the science of things, it's we need you need to have these fires come through um, as unfortunate as they are, they seem to us, but it also helps germinate seeds and it burns up the, the stuff on the bottom of the ground. It's been laying there for years um, and it really, really rejuvenates the, the forest, right? So that's kind of taking care of itself. Now, when it impacts humans, that's when it becomes a big disaster, right? So um, do, do you subscribe? I got two questions, but one is, do you subscribe to that? Like there are no natural disasters. There's only natural hazards that turn into disasters or touch a human, that, that whole push. I, I think there's a lot to that. Um, I mean, if you start from something's only a disaster if it impacts people, right? Then there are no natural disasters, right? Because the things that are impacted are our built infrastructure, our social infrastructure, and and now cyber stuff as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if if we really look at it, if there's an earthquake in, you know, the middle of somewhere that there's nobody and there's going to be no tsunami and there's going to be nothing like that, then all right. Um, that that's fine, but when it does impact people, and that that can include the economy too, right? Mm. Um, I mean, COVID huge, right? Even people that that didn't get COVID, that you know, were, were the lucky ones, um, and uh, and and didn't get it, you're still impacted because of you know policies, restrictions, the economy, whatever it happens to be, right? So, yeah, I would say there's no natural disasters. But um, we need to be aware of the natural hazards that exist, right? So that we can actually plan a little bit better and, and start to work and say, how do we mitigate that? How do we adapt to that? Yeah, we had a seven point something earthquake um, a couple of years ago, 4th of July, actually. Um, you know, which here obviously in the United States is a big holiday, um, up in China Lake, right? And uh, uh, China Lake is is literally in the middle of nowhere um it's an old well i guess it's still a lake bed but um it's an old lake bed that there's a navy base there uh which is weird think about that but anyway it's in the middle of it's a desert um and they do testing bomb testing and stuff like that that's the you know exercises and stuff like this um i want to say maybe five or eight homes were were damaged like severely damaged um that's about it and so we never really talked about that that earthquake, right? It's a very significant earthquake, a seven point whatever. Um, I mean, I felt it here in my house, and I'm probably a good five hours away from there. Kind of give you perspective on, on the distance. Yeah. Um, you know, and again, so we go, oh yeah, there was an earthquake. It was kind of weird on Fourth of July for nothing happened. Um, but if that was in the middle of downtown Los Angeles, we'd still be recovering from that right now, right? So mm-hmm. that's where, where it comes into this. And so there's a class I teach. We spoke about this before called the social impacts of disaster. Um, are, are all, you know, when we talk about the social impacts, it's not just, oh, how does it impact you, your home, which is terrible, right? If it's damaged. But it's also psychologically, politically, physically, you know, uh, just being able to get community back up and together. So how, do, how we, if you take all those areas, how do we make robust communities then or built, built upon that stuff? How much time do we have? Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, I think I think what it really comes down to is considering people first, always. And I think that's, you know, for me, that's a guiding principle. People first, always. And it doesn't matter what we're 
what we're talking about, whether it's building a new policy or, you know, building a plan or, or you know, uh, taking the kid to, to the mountains to go hiking, like whatever it happens to be, right? We get, right. Consider the people impacts first um, and actually talk to people. Imagine that, right? Like imagine we actually engaged in meaningful dialogue and imagine we started off listening to understand the other person, right? To understand the other perspective rather than to be right. I mean, there's a, there's a, a stat that I'm going to get the numbers a little bit wrong, but it, it's the order of magnitude that matters. And it's, you know, our, our brain takes, you know, 400 milliseconds to process what we've just heard before we can start formulating a response. The typical time between two people engaging in a conversation is like 150 milliseconds. So before you even finish speaking, I've already started thinking about how I'm going to respond or the next point that I'm going to make. How do we, how do we actually understand other people if that's the baseline, right? So if we can, if we can work to find community leaders, right? Cause it's not necessarily the elected official or like the, you know, the, the highest paid person's opinion, the hippo, whatever it happens to be. If we can actually find those community leaders and engage in meaningful dialogue and say, you know, what does your community look like? How, what makes it special? What makes it unique, right? What do you love about it? And understand that and start to pull and understand that social fabric that exists in every small community. And you can do this on the micro scale. You can do this like neighborhood by neighborhood, right? There's communities that have these programs where it's like, you've got a block captain or whatever that, whatever they call it, but it's somebody who's volunteered to be like, Hey, I'm going to know my neighbor, right? We're going to host a block party here. We're going to have a barbecue. Um, you know, 4th of July is a great time to do it, but we're gonna have a barbecue here and we're gonna, you know, everybody's gonna get together, talk about who it is, if, you know, new people moved into the neighborhood, blah, blah. And then you talk to the, the block one or two blocks over and, and you have those block captains connect and say, this is what's going on on our street. That's what's going on on our street, right? Let's bring those three blocks together now or four blocks together, right? And then you can start building that out a little bit more. And I may not know all of my neighbors, but I'm going to know somebody who knows the person on the next street. Right. And then, you know, we hear a fire truck coming down, down the road. Um, I'm going to know that, you know, Mrs. So-and-so or Mr. So-and-so needs some support. Right. And, and know who they're also connected with. Right. So it starts on that really micro level and then listening and learning. Novel concept, right? Uh, Absolutely. You know, I, I think that's one of the problems that we have as government officials in emergency management is we want to tell people, right? We would like to tell people. We like to hear these programs, you know, whether it's the CERT program, for instance, or whatever program, and we like to tell them what to do, and this is how we're going to make it better, and you will evacuate this way, and you will do this and do that, and we put signs up everywhere and tell people what to do. Um, and you're right. We I think I think when we do listening tours, if you will, that the listening portion of it is probably more critical than the uh, tour part of it. You know? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, and, and it also comes down to understanding communities. I, like the neighborhood that I live in, um, there's sort of a river on the south side, uh, and then on the the north and um, north and east side, it's a highway, right? And there's about 800 homes in this community, and it's split into to three different communities. One of the communities. Um, the average, the median age uh, in per household is like 67. Wow. And so instantly we're like, oh, vulnerable community, right? Like not only are they isolated because of the geography, but 
they're 67 years old. That's the, like the median age. Like, goodness knows we need to put a whole lot of resources there. And then pull one more thing and look and be like, well, if we've got all these seniors, how come there's no bus routes through there? And then you say, like, what, what's the median? And this is not my part of the neighborhood, the other neighborhood. But the median income is like, like $287,000, something like that. I'm like, wait, all these people are retired and their median income is $287,000? We can divert resources somewhere else. Right. right. So we need to understand, again, that goes back to the know the physical geography, know the, 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 um, the built world, know the social world. And then be able to actually allocate resources more more effectively. You know that's that's one of the problems we have here in the United States. Uh, we've been looking at this closely. Is when we look at recovery, disaster recovery. Um, those of us that are, you know, in the in the middle class, we we do okay, right? I, I mean, you know, we might have to go through insurance or do whatever, but you know, at some point, you, you know, your house is is built back to normal, right? And I mean, I have a friend of mine who lost his well part of his house. Um, due to a fire a few years ago, you know, and, and outside of, you know, arguing with his insurance company to cover whether they're going to rip the drywall in or not, you know, he's back in his home, um, you know, complete, they, they, they completely fixed it. Um, you know, the, the, the issue that we have is, is the uh, poor uh, do not know how to navigate. And, and I don't say this in the sense of education wise or intelligence wise, but they just don't have the resources, right? They don't have the insurance. They don't have, that help. They don't have a person who they can call, you know, they don't have a Jake by state farm who they could pick the phone up and say, Hey Jake, you know, help me out. Right. You know, they're, they're still trying to figure out, uh, you, you know, what, what they're doing. Um, and, and they, they get lost in the shuffle because now FEMA dollars are, are everybody thinks FEMA here in the United States. And it's like $4,000 per household. That's it. Here's a check for $4,000. Good luck. Slap you on the back and send you on your way. Um, and it's not quite that crass, but it, it, it feels that way. Yeah. Um, you know, so that's, that's the social side of impact. That's, social impacts of disaster is that, right? Because, you know, you do, you have those that have resources and needs uh, and that can meet their needs. Um, and when we talked about evacuation yesterday, uh, how do you get people out that have mobility needs? What I mean by mobility needs aren't just the people who can't walk into wheelchairs. It's those that do not have cars, right? How do you expect them to, to evacuate? So, we need to take those into consideration. That's all about community, right? It goes back to what you're saying with knowing your neighborhood and then having those uh, connections built. And Daniel Ulrich um, from Northwestern University um, in his book, Black Wave, talks about connections, loose connections, hard connections. You know, uh, do you see that, and I know some of the problems we have here in the States, um, and I talked to some people over in Europe as well, um, England, um, and, they, and they see, they feel the same way. But do you see like there's a less of connection between neighborhoods today than say 30 years ago? You know, I, it, it's funny. I think like, you know, we've got, uh, so in, in most areas in, in the city I live in, um, we got back alleys and people have garages in the back, right? Or even if you, you got a garage in the front of the house, like you drive into the garage and then you go to the house from there, right? So you, the only time you see your neighbors is when you're actually mowing the lawn, right? Like if you've got a lawn and then it's so loud that you can't hear anybody anyway, right? right. So just the way that we've designed our communities uh, to make them more car friendly because like having a car is important, right? But the way we've designed our communities means that we're going to be a little bit more isolated, right? Unless you're deliberate about it, right? And that goes back to like chat with a couple of neighbors, 
Right. I mean, this is going to be foreign to a lot of a lot of the listeners right now, but there's there's this hockey thing going on, um, right? And like, go Rangers. Uh, we'll we'll get there. That's that's for you. Uh, Thank you. But <laughs> I promise not to make you laugh too much, so I had to get that one in. Um, but you know, a, a bunch of our uh, people in our our neighborhood, we would just sit around, uh, get a projector, put the game up on somebody's garage door. Uh, or a big outdoor screen, and then everybody sit around and and enjoy the games, right? I mean, you can do that for any sport, but you can do that also for for any other event, right? There's lots of opportunities to just build community. Yeah, absolutely. I, I live in a cul-de-sac, kind of, you know, sharing that that story is, is that, um, and in the summertime we do a a movie um, on our front because we're at the end of the cul-de-sac, and so we do the, we do a movie night uh, in the summertime, and we project the movie out there, and everybody kind of gets their their lawn chairs out and stuff like this and uh and watches the movie at the at the end of the cul-de-sac it's a, it's a lot of fun we have about um five six houses that uh, that engage in that in that event um and it's a, it's doing stuff like that you're absolutely right and i'll tell you you know talking about those connections that during when covid did hit um and when and we'll get into supply chain questions here in a second because i think this is a good segue actually um you know so everybody was panicked buying everything. Like you couldn't find here in the States, you couldn't find anything. I don't know if it's the same way up in Canada or not. Um, but my neighbor, their kids only drink goat's milk. And so every time we went out to the store, we would look for goat's milk and just pick up a bottle because it's always good, you know, that she could put it through the rotation. Um, and then we would, our, oh, so we had a couple of elderly neighbors and we would say, hey, what do you need? And we would buy them groceries. And so they wouldn't have to go out and expose themselves uh, to covid and uh and i think that's that that all stemmed from doing that little silly you know watching a disney movie uh on the garage door you know on a summer evening you know in in uh, california and uh you know but um you know it also helped with that everybody knew what we we're looking for and when we had the supply chain issues still do um you know everybody was able to find stuff that they needed how how do you see the supply chain issues impacting communities uh, do you see people going to start hoarding stuff or are they going to share? Yeah. You know, I, I can't really necessarily speak to, to the individual level, right? Like we're, we're, we're sharing, clearly you're sharing. Um, but uh, you know, there are some people who are, who are quite concerned about, about what's going on. Um, and so, um, you know, one of the, one of the really interesting things is there's this, you know, push from, from some areas for buy local. Um, and it was always buy local, support the local farmers, support the small, small people. And this, you know, this was even well before COVID, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's sort of like hundred mile meal. Right. right. Um, so, you know, all your food comes from, from within hundred miles and anybody who was good at that and practicing that um, just thrived during the pandemic, right. They weren't impacted by, uh, I mean, they were, but they weren't impacted as, as severely by all the different disruptions that happened, right? Like, heaven forbid, in, in northern Canada, I can't, uh, you know, get a fresh mango. Um, like, uh, that that's just not going to happen. Um, but, uh, you know, finding ways to, to do a lot of new things. And, and one of the things that I've loved seeing over the last two years is the number of community gardens that have popped up. Yeah. Um, and we actually had, uh, a few different communities uh, that I know of where they're like, what are we going to do? Like community garden. Okay. Uh, the 
community pitched in and bought greenhouse stuff. And so they were actually able to keep going during the winter. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, we do get a solid week uh, or, or more, depending, of minus 40. And it doesn't matter whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius, it's still really cold. Um, <laughs> but the, <laughs> sorry, that's, that's twice now. Um, but, uh, you know, having the ability to actually continue that growing season uh, and, and carry on, um, again, that's community coming back together. Right, so you can still have uh, the the fresh veggies and, and those kinds of things that you need. So I, I think you know the other thing, and, and Matthew McConaughey said it uh, a couple of days ago when uh, speaking from the White House. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the issue is, but he, the, the the key part is we agree about more of this than we disagree, mm. right? And so finding deliberately finding common ground starting from that rather than saying like you know i'm i'm you know this you're that whatever it happens to be right like i'm green or orange it doesn't matter it doesn't matter let's find out what we agree on right because that's going to close the gap a whole lot right and so if it's you know our neighbor down the street uh, has got mobility challenges or they need goat milk right right how to, okay great i'm going to the store i can i can support because it doesn't matter what at that point it doesn't matter what your political views are it doesn't matter what you know like what your religion is it doesn't matter what matters is that you're building that community with your neighbors yeah i want to say ronald reagan said something along the lines if you agree with me 80 percent, we can work on the 20 you know i'm paraphrasing the the quote but um and i think that's that's correct right i mean like we're never going to agree 100 percent on anything you know um i mean it's Heck, you know, you, you, you might be all on the same side and all of a sudden you start talking about sports teams and you're on the, on the other side of the uniform and everybody's like, ah, you know, it's like, I you know, don't like you anymore because you like that team. Um, you know, but, uh, <laughs> um, but, but yeah, I mean, if we can find that 80% in everything that we do, I think that's critical. And, and going back to your, your concept or what you're talking about regarding knowing your neighbor, um, one of my volunteers when I was working in, in city government um, came up with this idea and we expanded upon it and, and, and implemented it uh, was the idea of a, we called it neighbor for neighbor. And um, we went and did basically, I, I was told I had to do some of the stuff regarding um, neighborhood watch. And I'm like, okay, neighborhood watch programs are great when there's something going on. Like if there's a crime wave happening, everybody wants to get together. But as soon as the crime wave is over, uh, it's like you, I mean, literally, I went to a neighborhood watch meeting or as the host myself and I play the cookies, you know, and there's a reason why I'm chubby because I went to a lot of these meetings where I'm the only one having to eat all this damn cookies. Right. And, and um, so I blame, I blame the police department for, for that. So just, just let you know, I couldn't say no. Right. So, uh, but the idea of neighbor for neighbor really put it on another sand because we could do neighborhood watch stuff. Right. When there's no crime happening or to prevent crime. And then the other side of it is we could do, disaster preparedness and everybody's disaster or crisis is individual and in the, in the case of this there was a little old lady who lived in the neighborhood and she didn't have a, a vehicle you know and the t- the people in the neighborhood didn't realize that she had this issue and they got together and they created a schedule to get her to the doctor to get her to uh, a beauty hair beauty salon appointments to get her to the grocery store and like they, the whole neighborhood adopted her and she was kind of a shut-in until we had that program. So, I mean, if, if we say one person is successful, I would say one neighborhood. That was one neighborhood that came together around um, disaster preparedness and really started helping one person who had mobility issues. 
And I think that's what communities is, is all about. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that, uh, that's used sort of triggered with me is, is the idea of language, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have neighborhood watch and like, what's the sign for neighborhood watch? It's just like cut out of a house with like these eyes, like staring from behind a curtain. Right. So what does that tell you? It's like, be suspicious of everyone. Right. Like stay in your home. It's not safe. Like that's not, that's not the whole point of it. Right. The whole point was to build community. Uh, and, you know, because it, it started in the Cold War and all that kind of stuff, it was like, watch out for the rats. Right. This is dangerous. And so, <laughs> you know, how do we, you know, neighbor for neighbor sounds like a, a great way to frame it. Right. Um, and whatever, however you're going to frame it, make sure that it's enabling language. So that so that we're not, you know, inadvertently working against what we're trying to do. Yeah, yeah. I tell my friend all the time, words matter, and uh, uh, he holds me to it sometimes because sometimes I'll say something, and he'll call me out on it, and I have to like justify why I use those particular particular words. But uh, uh, but it's true though, right? You know, like I I think when you're just like casual conversation, it's a little bit different. You have to purse your words, but when you're actually doing something, when it was public facing that you're discussing that you really should be thinking about um, what that message is. And that's going down to messaging. You know, when we talk about disaster preparedness and building robust communities, um, as my students and I had a conversation the other day about this, is it all politics? And and when I say politics, right, say political, I should say. It's not that it's it's red versus blue or green versus orange or whatever, right? It's the, it's the, the person who's in charge of the community, whether it's the mayor or whatever, um, you know, when a disaster occurs, their people are looking to them for answers. And and if there's no answers, they're gonna lose their they're gonna lose their job. So if you're working for city government, you know, you have to be considering that aspect of of the uh, the political question that happens. And and you have to think that way. You can't you can't deny it. Um, but. I asked a question one time to to a couple of the FEMA administrators, former FEMA administrators at a conference, and uh, we're doing a, a, a roundtable. And I asked them, how do we take politics out of out of emergency management? And, and Craig Fugate goes, you can't. Emergency management is politics. Is it the same way in Canada? I think it is. I mean, we've got a really different system. Uh, we don't have a FEMA. Right. Um, so we don't, I mean, we've got our, our public safety yeah. Canada and, and they they sort of work on policy coordination uh, primarily. And then they've got, they sort of hold the, the strings to like open up the surprise bag of all the federal government resources that, that could possibly come, which is you know, quite often the military that gets, gets to come um, to support. But, you know, in, in, in many ways, we don't have that, that robust capability. Um, and our, uh, the way that our constitution is written, um, quite, quite different from uh, the American constitution. Um, for you know, a whole lot of different reasons, but the the way that it's actually set up, our provinces have jurisdiction over disasters, um, and uh, the the feds can say like, "Hey, you should do this," uh, and the provinces are like, "Thanks." Um, and this is, but there's there's no overarching mechanism unless uh, we invoke the Emergencies Act, right? Which is like, it's, it's been done once, and it was because of protests recently. Um, that were that were threatening to, to cripple an entire city. I mean, it was it was a, a non-violent version of of your January event uh, a couple of years ago. Right. Um, 
Canadian protests. Gotta love them. They brought a sauna um, with them to a coup. So let's figure that out, right? Good. Um, but, you know, without, without, I mean, without being too flippant about it, um, you know, our, our structure is different, right? And that means that there has to be politics. Right? You have to be able to negotiate. You have to be able to engage and 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 have discussions um, at multiple different levels. Right? Um, and then the other one that is is incredibly important um, to me and, and to many other people, you know, especially when you start talking about people in community, um, our First Nations, uh, Inuit yeah. and Métis communities have a direct relationship with the federal government, with the crown, right? And so that can add some complexity when a disaster happens, because uh, if it if it impacts a, a nation, then who are they supposed to be coordinating with, right? There's this this weird jurisdictional coordination piece that needs to happen. And so we need to be really mindful of that uh, and ensure that, again, we're being inclusive in terms of how we're actually having those conversations and how we're building those policies and how we're, we're making sure that everybody's got a seat at the table. Yeah. And at multiple tables. Right. I, I mean, it's very similar. I mean, like at the end of the day, it's, we say disasters are run locally, right? Supported by the state. And then, you know, um, and then basically funded by the federal government, if you like, like a better term. But, um, you know, for the first station um, issue, I think is, is kind of interesting because especially like up in New York, uh, Vermont and uh, um, Maine and that area, New Hampshire, there's a few of the tribes that cross border, right? There's like, which is, I don't know if you've ever crossed the border over there, which is a whole different uh, uh, trippy thing because you're like, you never, you're not, yeah. And for those, I'm trying to explain something that's like unexplainable realistically because you're kind of in the United States and you're not in the United States and you're kind of in Canada, but you're not in Canada and there's like different rules for crossing the border up there. And, and uh, there's dirt roads that literally will go between our, our countries that uh, aren't guarded in any way because technically they're not necessarily each one of our each country. So, yeah, so, yeah. And so there's a lot of cross, there's a lot of issues up there when it comes to disaster response and, and, and sending monies and it gets complicated pretty quickly. Eh? Yeah. Mm. But that's what we're paid for, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like, if, if, yeah, you know, if, if things were uh, easy to solve, um, then we'd all be out of jobs. Absolutely. Right? Um, Josh, we're coming, we're coming close to the end here. Well, actually, I guess we are at the end looking at like time. I, I always can run over in these conversations because it can go for a long time. But um, tell me really quick about what you're doing up at your school and then how people can find you. Yeah. Uh, so I'm at the Northern Alberta Institute of Technology. Um, we've got a professional development and research and training center, our Center for Applied Disaster and Emergency Management. And then we've also got a disaster emergency management diploma program. Uh, which is entirely online right now and, and asynchronous. So um, we've got students across the country and, and from around the world. Uh, and uh, I'm biased. Uh, I think it's a fantastic program. Uh, I think all of the things that we do are, are just awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, we've got about 100 students that we take in every year um, on the, the diploma side. Uh, and and I think, I think we've got like a 97% placement rate um, for our students when they come out. So like clearly we're doing something right. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on LinkedIn, um, and on Twitter, uh, and, uh, yeah, love to connect more. Absolutely. Josh, it was such a pleasure talking to you today and, uh, we, we should do this again soon. I would love to Todd. Thanks so much. 
Hey everybody, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you for putting up with my my cold. And like uh, as always, if you guys are driving down the road, uh, don't have a pencil or your pencil's not sharp, don't fret. We have Joshua's information in the show notes as well, so you can go ahead and click it over there. And well, everybody, until next week, please stay safe and stay hydrated.